Hey everyone, welcome back to the Human Apologetics. So glad you joined us today. Today I have Justin Moody with me. He's a grad student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. So Justin, um, what's up? How's it going? Oh, hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so um, just to start off today, we're going to be looking at like the problem of evil in Justin's paper called How to Solve the Problem of Evil, so a pretty ambitious task. Um, so we're going to look at this. Um, so Justin, to start off, do you want to just like introduce yourself, tell us like who you are, what you do, and um, why you got things like hippos in your background and sharks on your t-shirt? You know? Yeah, um, Yeah. so okay, so my name is Justin Mooney. I am a PhD candidate in the philosophy department at UMass. And um, I work mostly in metaphysics and philosophy of religion. And I, I really like hippos. Hippos are my favorite. Um, but, I, you know, there are lots of cool animals. So this, I just love this shirt. I have, it's got um, 29 species of sharks on it, which makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. So when you, like, when we were all in, like, Zoom University last year, did you just always have the hippo in the background for all your, like, classes and such? Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been my Zoom background for the entire pandemic, including all the classes that I teach. And actually, it's a class I'm teaching right now, and it's, it's in the background. <laughs> that's pretty amazing um so today what we've been doing is unfortunately i'm talking about hippos but also talking about the problem of evil um in your paper how to solve the problem of evil so do you want to just like before you get into like the specifics and such just kind of lay out like what got you interested in like writing about this and this topic yeah sure um so i think uh i mean by the time that i found my way to philosophy i was already very interested in um, philosophical questions about God. Um, that was actually the, my first philosophical interest, I guess, was God. But what really got me interested in the problem of evil in particular was a mentor I had um, at a previous school that I was at who was an atheist and who was very, very smart, a really excellent philosopher, and who um, thought that the problem of evil was a decisive argument against theism. And so he kind of pressed me on this and we talked about it a, a number of times and it, it got me to um, take the problem of evil really seriously and see like how powerful arguments from evil can be. So that's really what got me uh, thinking about this subject quite a bit. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So today we're looking at like the argument from gratuitous evils and such. Um, so you just want to talk about like what is the argument from gratuitous evil? Yeah. All right. So the argument from gratuitous evil is an argument against the existence of God. And uh, it's, I mean, arguably, it's the most powerful and influential argument against the existence of God. The basic idea is pretty simple. It says, you know, look, if there is a God, at least of the sort that um, most Western theists believe in, then that God would never permit certain kinds of evils that are often called gratuitous evils or pointless evils. Um, but if you look around at the world, it seems like there are some evils which are gratuitous or pointless. And so it must be that there is no God like that. God just doesn't exist. All right, that's the core of the argument from gratuitous evil. But um, of course, an obvious question is, well, what exactly is gratuitous evil? And one thing that complicates this is that, you know, people who talk about gratuitous evil in the literature don't always use that term the same way. Um, there's actually a lot of different ways that it's been used. So let me just say how I'm going to use it. Um, I'm going to use it in the way I do uh, use it in the, in the paper that you've referenced. Um, in that paper, I use gratuitous evil to cover two different kinds of evil 
that some people have thought that God would just never permit. And I call them conditionally gratuitous evil and unconditionally gratuitous evil. So conditionally gratuitous evil is evil that's not necessary for bringing about some greater good. Um, so like, for example, uh, William Rowe has this famous case from a paper from the late 1970s where he says, well, imagine a fawn that is uh, badly burned in a forest fire and it uh, just suffers in agony for days from these injuries and then it just dies and nobody is around to witness this, so it has like no further impact on the world of any interesting sort. Um, all right, so Roe says, look, this seems like it, it's really hard to think of any greater good that God could bring about only by permitting that evil. It seems like God could have prevented that fawn suffering without sacrificing any greater good at all, anything of comparable importance. So, um, that is a candidate example of a conditionally gratuitous evil, an evil that's just not necessary for any greater good. Uh, it's a controversial example, though, but it's it's one of the candidate ones that gets talked about in the literature. And then um, I also made a point in this paper to keep in view um, what I called unconditionally gratuitous evils. And these are evils which are impermissible even if they are necessary for a greater good. So, um, and this is a kind of thing that you might, you might think that there are evils like this if you are attracted to a deontological approach to ethics. So deontological views in ethics basically say that the value of the consequences of an action is not the only thing that matters to whether or not that action is right or wrong. Um, so, uh, Here's an example of a case where a lot of people kind of have a deontological intuition, where it seems like consequences aren't the only thing that matters. And this is a famous example due to um, a philosopher named Philip Afoot. So suppose you have five people who are dying, and the only way to save them is to give them, you know, organ transplants. Um, but the only suitable donor is this one healthy person. Um, is it permissible for you to kill the one healthy person? and transplant his organs into the five dying people in order to save the five dying people. And we may suppose that the one healthy person has not given their consent, they haven't volunteered or anything like that. A lot of people have the intuition that no, it's not okay to kill that one person to save those five other people. And that seems to be a deontological intuition because if we're just thinking in terms of the overall value of consequences, well, it's five lives versus one. So wouldn't it be better in terms of the value of the consequences to kill the one and save the five? But if it seems to you like, yeah, but it's still wrong to just kill this person um, in order to save these five people, that's a sign that, well, maybe deontological uh, ethics is right, that consequences aren't the only thing that matters morally. Okay, so suppose you take a deontological approach to ethics like that, well then, um, you might think that there are some evils which are impermissible even if they would have good consequences uh, and even if there's no other way to achieve those good consequences. I think that some plausible examples of this would be the really horrendous cases of uh, child abuse and child torture that Dostoevsky recounts in the novel The Brothers Karamazov. And I'm not going to describe those here, but they're really quite awful. And when you read that, I, you know, I think that one of the reactions that um, 
it would be, uh, it's natural to have is to think, look, you should not let, if you could stop those events from happening and rescue those children, you should do it even if for some reason torturing that child would have like these really great consequences down the line. Um, okay, so that would be a candidate example of an unconditionally gratuitous evil. Um, so then the question is like, all right, so are there really evils like this? And if there are, does that really mean that there's no God, right? Is it really true that God would never permit these kinds of evils? Was that uh, clear? Yeah, no, I think I'm tracking with you. Um, and I appreciate kind of getting through these different kinds of gratuitous evils. Um, so at least I like always had like the general understanding that like gratuitous evils are things that like, um, like don't have like a greater good. So I really appreciate you going into that second definition because it's something I haven't thought about um, too much, Justin. Yeah. And I should say, I mean, most people, when they talk about gratuitous evil in the literature, are thinking of what I called conditionally gratuitous evil, which is about, you know, not being necessary for a greater good. So mm -hmm. I include unconditionally gratuitous evil. That's something a little bit unusual that I'm doing. It's a little bit less common. But it is, I think, an important kind of evil that we need to think about when we're thinking about the problem of evil. I think you're really right, and it's something we'll hopefully look at more as we progress through um, the conversation today. Um, so the first thing I want to get at here is, like, um, in your view, Justin, like, why would God allow evil in the first place? Right. Yeah. Um, so let me approach this. Uh, let me start very abstractly here. So the standard approach that theists take here is to say that there's some good thing or maybe many or several good things that God is aiming to bring about and that God can only bring about by permitting evils like the evils in our world. But it is permissible and even good for God to bring about those good things at the cost of evils like those in our world. Okay, so very abstractly, that's kind of like the standard formula for answering this question, like why would God allow evil in the first place? Now, there's a bunch of different ways to fill out the formula. And it's, it's just a matter of like, well, what exactly are the good things that, you know, play this role? Um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a bunch of different candidates. I've been working um, on a what's aspiring to be a comprehensive bibliography of academic work on the problem of evil. And one of the things that I think is really brought out by what I have so far is that there are just so many, you know, theories and suggestions that people have come up with about how to fill in this sort of scheme. But let me mention a couple of um, popular ones, and then I'll say something about what I'm actually personally thinking. So one really popular one is um, a free will-based approach that says, well, the, the main good thing that God is aiming to bring about in the world at the cost of evil is free will. Uh, free will is this valuable thing, so God wants to make sure that we have it, but if we have free will, then we can abuse it. And so we can choose to do evil things and make bad things happen. Um, so that's one way of sort of filling out the story. Another popular way to do it is um, the soul-making uh, theory, which says that the good thing that God is aiming to bring about at the cost of evils like those in our world is um, the development of virtue in finite agents like us. So the idea is that... Um, in order for us to, or God wants us to develop virtue, to become virtuous people and to acquire virtuous character traits. But, but in order to do that, we need to be able to respond to bad things in the world because many virtues are responses to bad things. So for example, um, compassion 
is uh, something that you develop by responding to suffering in certain ways. And forgiveness is something you develop by responding to wrongdoing in certain ways. Um, and so forth. Uh, you know, faith is something that you develop by responding to uncertainty in certain ways. Courage is something you develop by responding to danger in certain ways, and, you know, on and on. And so the idea is that, well, okay, so if God is going to put us in an environment where we actually have the opportunity to develop these virtues, it's got to be an environment where there's bad things that for us to respond to. Um, and so that's another way of filling out the story. Now, um, what do I actually think in my view? So I don't actually have a really firm view on what is the good thing that God is aiming for at the cost of evil in the world, but I have been leaning lately in this direction. So some people have suggested that uh, meaningfulness might be a really important value that God is aiming to realize and that requires evil like that in our world. So Eric Silverman has some unpublished work on this, or at least as far as I know, it's still unpublished. Um, and, and, you know, it, it comes up occasionally in the literature. This is something I've only just started to think about. But the, the rough idea would be like, look, you know, in order for the world to be a meaningful place where people live meaningful lives and do meaningful things, there's got to be um, evil and hardship of various sorts. And perhaps um, you, in order to have a, a certain degree of meaningfulness or even certain kinds of meaningfulness, maybe that would require uh, what are called like horrendous evils, like the worst kinds of evils um, that we see in this world. But this is something that I've only just kind of begun to think about. So I have not worked out the details or anything. Um, it's potentially a career long project, in fact. So no, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's super interesting to think about. And like, even from like, like a story or like maybe like even like an aesthetic perspective like um like it seems like the story is like so much more meaningful and so much more better like if there is these like hardships and struggles um whereas if like if everyone's created in heaven da, 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 like it seems like like not as good of a story at least in my mind and less meaningful um so it's a rough sketch i was just thinking about that as you were talking justin mm -hmm. yeah and there are some theodicies that actually emphasize that idea of god kind of like authoring a highly valuable story and evil playing mm -hmm. a that. So Plantiga's Felix Kupa theodicy has that element to it. And Josh Rasmussen has a theodicy actually calls the great story theodicy. Um, mm -hmm. Does that. Um, yeah. And that actually was one of the uh, things that I was thinking about when I, um, when actually Eric Silverman kind of first exposed me to the thought that, well, what if meaningfulness has an important role to play here? So yeah, I think those things are related. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so now what we're going to do is look at like two different strategies that have been used to like try to solve the problem of gratuitous evil. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll just ask like what it is and like do you think it can solve it? Um, so first is the restriction strategy. So what do you think of it? What is it? And like can it solve the problem of evil? Good, yeah. So this is this is one of the strategies I talk about in this paper that you mentioned. The paper is basically about deontological strategies for responding to the argument from gratuitous evil. And I already said something about what deontology is. So um the restriction strategy basically says that, you know, maybe God is obligated to permit gratuitous evil. Um, okay, now let me immediately say, you know, so I found that some people um, kind of cringe at the idea of talking about God having like obligations or moral duties. Now it's controversial. Some people think God does have moral duties and obligations. Some people do not. 
But I want to mention, uh, because some people are uncomfortable with this, that the, this view actually does not require that God has moral obligations. So Eric Reeton is uh, one person who has defended the restriction strategy, and he makes the point that you can basically just recast everything he says about God's moral obligations in terms of like how a morally perfect being just would necessarily behave. Um, but I'm going to continue to talk in terms of moral obligations just because it's easier. Um, I just wanted to note that. Yeah, but the idea is, okay, so God is obligated to permit gratuitous evil. Now, that might sound really weird, but actually um, it's plausible that even we sometimes are obligated to permit gratuitous evil. Uh, so take the, the organ donor case I mentioned earlier, right? So there's an evil there of these five people dying. Uh, but you might have the intuition that, you know, even though there is a way to save them, that would ultimately result in fewer people dying, right, by killing that one healthy person. You might think, well, yeah, but it's not okay to do that. It's just not permissible. Um, and so that looks like it might be a case where it's actually, there's an obligation to permit um, a conditionally gratuitous evil, to permit more people to die than you, than you could have permitted to die. Okay, in that case. Um, okay, so if that's a possibility, if that's something that might happen in the human case, you might think, well, maybe the same is true for God. And so what you, the idea is you can take existing theories about why God permits evil and fit them into this structure. So you might say, uh, Eric Reeton, for example, takes uh, Swinburne's free will uh, theodicy and says, look, we can recast this as uh, instead of it being about the value of free will, it's about a duty to um, respect freedom, even at the cost of uh, horrendous evil, or sorry, gratuitous evil. Um, similarly, in the paper, I, in my paper, I suggest um, that maybe this could be done with a soul-making theodicy. I say like, well, maybe God has like a, a duty to um, give us the opportunity to develop virtuous character traits or to develop our characters in the direction of our own choosing for, for better or worse. Um, and it might be that that duty is one that God has, even uh, if it would cost uh, permitting some gratuitous, not just evil, but gratuitous evil, right? Because it could be a deontological duty where not just the consequences matter. All right. So that's the rough idea. Um, now you asked uh, what, um, there does this does this work as like a rebuttal to the argument from gratuitous evil? I think um, I think that there's at least one serious worry. Of, I mean, probably not just one, but one that I worry about in the paper um, for this as a response to the argument from gratuitous evil, and it is the following. Um, so, in ordinary human experience, you might think that cases like the organ donor case are the exception rather than the rule. Mm. It's just not typical that we're obligated to permit gratuitous suffering. And moreover, it just kind of makes sense that we wouldn't typically be obligated to permit gratuitous suffering because gratuitous suffering is really, really morally bad. And so you would expect, especially in some of like the worst cases, that we would at least be permitted to prevent it. Um, and so I think that that's a big hurdle for the restriction strategy just taken by itself uh, because Applying this strategy across the board requires us to say that all of the gratuitous evil in the world is such that God was obligated to permit it. And you might think, well, that, you know, that's just not plausible. Maybe some of it, but all of it. 
All right, so that's that's the my main worry, I think, about the restriction strategy. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Um, so the other strategy you talk about is the prerogative strategy. Um, so like, what is it and can it solve the problem of evil? Yeah, right. So the prerogative strategy is a fun one. Um, so the idea here is that God has a prerogative to permit gratuitous evil. Um, and this is, again, something where there's actually some precedent for it in the human case. All right. So think about this. It seems like there's gratuitous evil, both conditional and unconditionally gratuitous evil, uh, going on all the time, um, going on, uh, you know, around the world and so on all, all the time. And a lot of us could do more to prevent that evil. But you might think that morality doesn't actually demand that of us. Um, now, some people think that it does, but think about a case like this, right? So I think it seems permissible to me that if I wanted to, I could have a family. But if I did have a family, um, I would end up uh, spending, uh, using a lot of my resources, my time, my income, and so forth, taking care of my family. Whereas if I never had a family, I would have more time and resources that I could, at least in principle, uh, give to charities that are really effective at alleviating suffering around the world, uh, much of which is at least prima facie gratuitous in one or another of those ways. Um, and so uh, if it's really true, as I think most people believe, that it's permissible for me to have a family if I want to, then it looks like morality has the following feature. Morality doesn't require us to do everything within our power to prevent gratuitous suffering. Um, now, again, this is controversial. There are some philosophers who think that actually morality does do that. Um, but uh, setting that view aside, right, suppose it's true that morality doesn't require us to do everything within our power to prevent gratuitous suffering. Well, you might think, well, maybe the same is true about God. Maybe morality also doesn't require God to do everything within God's power to prevent gratuitous suffering. Now, of course, the details are going to matter here. Right, so it's going to matter ultimately what is the so-called rationale for our prerogative to permit uh, some of the gratuitous suffering that we permit, and whether that rationale would apply to God. And um, you might worry that, like, well, if it has a lot to do with human limitations, then it's not going to apply to God. But actually, when you look in the literature of the different rationales that have been proposed um, for this kind of prerogative we have, a lot of them are at least prima facie applicable to God. And at least some people like Mike Ray have explicitly suggested, yeah, look, we can apply this to God and, and morality doesn't require God to do everything that's in God's power to prevent gratuitous evil. So I think that this is a live possibility that um, a number of people have kind of played around with or even defended. Um, now, there is the question, though, of, uh, you know, does this actually... Um, does this actually rebut the argument from gratuitous evil, right? Does this work as a response just to say, well, look, God doesn't have to prevent gratuitous evil if God doesn't want to. There's just this prerogative that God has, similar to some of the prerogatives we have. Um, well, so I think the main problem with this approach is that even if it's right, all it gets you is that God isn't required to prevent gratuitous evil. But that doesn't mean that God wouldn't prevent gratuitous evil anyway. And traditionally, God loves us, and love is, of course, a powerful motivator. And so you might think, well, look, uh, even if God isn't required to prevent gratuitous evil, why wouldn't God do it anyway? Um, 
So that I think is an important worry for this view. And it's, it's just not clear that the prerogative strategy taken by itself has a good response to that objection, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting um, thinking about these two strategies. So what you do now is you combine um, the restriction strategy and the prerogative strategy, which have um, their own individual worries into like a single strategy. Um, so like, what's your combination of these two strategies, Justin, um, with regards to like solving the problem of Buell? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I take the two strategies and I say, look, what, look what happens when we combine them. Uh, <laughs> the cool thing is they they pretty much just solve each other's problems when you put them together, right? So those two problems that I identified, one for each view, just kind of go away if you just combine the views. Yeah. So all right. So this this is the strategy that I sort of recommend at the end of the paper. I call it creatively the restriction prerogative strategy. Um, <laughs> wow, philosophers and their creative names, you know? Yes. Um, and it was so long, it was like restriction hyphen prerogative strategy that I was initially doing just R hyphen P and then the editor of the journal, the journal is published only online now. So the editor was like, well, we don't have to save those pixels. You might as well spell out the whole thing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, okay. so. Um, yeah, so the idea behind this strategy is like, look, God does have a prerogative to permit gratuitous evil. So God can create worlds where there is gratuitous evil. But also, God has an obligation to bring about certain goods in those worlds which actually require those gratuitous evils. So you have both the prerogative of the prerogative strategy and the restriction or obligation of the restriction strategy. Okay. Now, um, how does this solve the problems if you're just putting them together, right? So it goes something like this. Um, so the problem for the restriction strategy you might remember was that, well, you know, it might be true that sometimes we're obligated to permit gratuitous evil, but uh, it doesn't seem plausible that, you know, God would be obligated to permit all the gratuitous evil, right? Because there are lots of cases where we're, we we actually should prevent gratuitous evils, especially like really, really bad ones, you might think. All right. Mm -hmm. That was the problem for the restriction strategy. But actually, um, it turns out that if you also already have a prerogative to permit some gratuitous evil, then it doesn't take much it doesn't take a particularly weighty or important obligation to make it the case that you're actually, all things considered, obligated to permit that gratuitous evil. So the prerogative strategy kind of gives the restriction strategy a boost with respect to making it, uh, or making it required for God to permit gratuitous evil. Um, now, I'm being a little bit loose here in the paper. I... I go into some more detail and, and I'm a little more technical about it, but let me give you an illustration that I think will be more useful for your mm -hmm. audience than the technical details would be. Um, so suppose uh, that I have just gotten uh, a paycheck and one of the things I could do with that paycheck is I could give it to a charity that I know is really effective when it comes to alleviating suffering. Um, but, uh, but it seems like I have a prerogative not to. It seems like I don't, I'm not obligated to use the money I got you know, from this paycheck in that way. I could, if I chose, use it for something else. And that's true even if, I if I'm obligated to you know, give some of my income to charity at least some of the time, right? But this particular paycheck, you might think, well, no, I mean, I could give it to charity and, and thereby prevent some gratuitous suffering if I wanted to, but I don't have to. 
Now suppose that in addition to that prerogative, I've also promised a friend that I will give them this paycheck or this money from this paycheck to help them start a business. Okay, now that obligation in the grand moral scheme of things is maybe not one of the weightiest or most important obligations, right? An obligation to help a friend with a startup business with a, a little bit of money, which is probably a small contribution, right? But I think that in this case, even though that obligation isn't super weighty in the grand scheme of things, intuitively, I am required to keep my promise and give this money to my friend, even though one of the things I could do instead with that money is give it to that charity that's good at alleviating suffering. So um, it seems to me what's going on in this case is that the fact that I already have a prerogative to permit some gratuitous suffering makes it easy for um, even a relatively like mo you know, only moderately important obligation to come in and then make it such that, okay, well, now I'm just obligated to do something other than prevent that suffering. And so my suggestion is that in the case of God, the same thing is happening. If we suppose that God has a prerogative to permit the gratuitous suffering in the world, um, then even if, like, you know, say God has an obligation to give us the opportunity to engage in soul making, even if that obligation is not super weighty, all things considered, uh, it, it may well be enough to make it turn out that all things considered, God is obligated to permit the gratuitous suffering in the world because that prerogative kind of gave it a running head start in a sense. Mm. Um, I hope that was sort of clear. Was that clear? Yeah, I think I'm kind of tracking with you. Um, it makes sense combining the two strategies. I'm kind of wondering though, um, maybe we can like talk about like how this looks like like in the world. Like um, there's different examples using like with like regards to like the problem of evil, whether it's like different versions of it or whatnot. So like how do you, how do you use this like um, restricted per prerogative? If you can pronounce it um, strategy. Like how does this how does this all flesh out? Oh sure, yeah. So actually, before I do that, um, so that was how it solves the problem with uh, for the restriction strategy, but I actually. Mm -hmm. I still should say how it solves a problem for the prerogative strategy. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I probably made it sound like I had already done that. But, um, <laughs> uh, right, okay, so, so um, if what I've said so far is right, the idea is that with the help of the prerogative to permit gratuitous evil, it turns out that um, God's duty to permit gratuitous evil posited by the restriction strategist um, stands undefeated, basically. So uh, that solves the problem for the restriction strategy. Now remember that the problem for the prerogative strategy was um, that even if God is permitted uh, to just not prevent the gratuitous evil in the world, even if that's okay for God to do, morally speaking, nevertheless, it seems like God would be motivated to prevent that gratuitous evil anyway, because it uh, because God loves us, for example, right? Um, okay, well, Combining the two strategies solves this problem, too, and that's because once we've established that, in fact, God does end up with an all-things-considered obligation to permit the gratuitous evil in the world when the two strategies are combined, then there's an answer to, well, why doesn't God intervene anyway? And the answer is because God is not permitted to, because there is that all-things-considered obligation. Um, okay, so that's how, it, when you combine them, it's supposed to solve the problem not only for the restriction strategy, but for the prerogative strategy. 
Okay, and now let's get to what was that that other thing you had asked? Uh, um, I was just thinking like um, so like when we're looking at like we've been like laying it out like philosophically like when we look at like actual examples used like proponents of the problem of evil um to say like well here's some gratuitous suffering like how does your strategy kind of answer those Justin? Right. Yeah. So think about um, think about like uh, uncondi or sorry, think about conditionally gratuitous evils first, right? So there was the case of Rose Fawn, which was a candidate case of a conditionally gratuitous evil. Um, so, so one thing that this strategy allows you to say is it allows you to say that, yeah, maybe that is a conditionally gratuitous evil. Maybe there just is no greater good that um, God could bring about only by permitting that fawn's suffering in that forest fire. Um, but nevertheless, there would be an explanation uh, of why God permits that suffering. What would that explanation be? Well, um, formulaically, it would be that there's some good thing that God is trying to bring about and that God is required to bring about, even though it requires, uh, that good thing in question requires God to permit evils like the suffering of the fawn. And even though the good thing doesn't outweigh that those evils, that would be the idea here. Um, it would be similar to like, you know, you're being required not to kill the one person to save the five, even though doing so would sort of outweigh the death of the one mm -hmm. person because you save five, right? Um, now there's a question of, of, again, of course, like, well, what could that good thing be in the case of the fawn, right? Because we still need there to be some something that the obligation is directed towards. It would just be weird if God just had a brute, like, well, nope, you can't prevent this evil, but there's no reason. Right. Mm. It's just, um, well, uh, and so here you can plug in. I, I mean, one thing that's, I think nice, a nice feature of the strategy of outlined is it's, it's really a, like a skeleton that you can fill in with whatever your favorite theories are about why God permits evil. It just gives them a different deontological shape. Um, and so for example, one one approach to um, like the suffering of the deer in the forest fire is uh, to say that that suffering will contribute to the deer's soul making or character building in the afterlife. Right? This is a view that's been defended by people like Trent Doherty, who say that oh well, look, you know, maybe in the case of non-human animals, even though they aren't really building morally virtuous character, that you know they're not in this life. It could be that they will have an opportunity in an afterlife to do that, um, where they're they're given, you know, the sophisticated um, rational faculties that would allow them to engage in like morally virtuous action. And and Doherty suggests that by being made aware of or reminded of their past suffering, they could build their characters by responding to that past suffering in various ways. Right. So that would be one way to deal with. Um, the fawn case, but putting it into this deontological framework I'm suggesting, uh, what that does is it, it takes away the burden of saying that the evil is not gratuitous. It could very well be that the soul making of the animal in the afterlife is not a greater good in the sense that it outweighs the fawn suffering, because it might just be that God is obligated to bring about that good anyway, whether or not it's a greater good. Or if you think the fawn suffering is an unconditionally gratuitous evil, the idea would be something like this, like, well, maybe it's soul making is a greater good for it. But for like ordinary people like us, it's just not permissible for us to go torture fawns because that will help them soul make in the afterlife. But you might think, ah, but in the case of God, 
um, maybe God actually has a prerogative and in addition to that, a special duty to uh, bring about the soul making of the, the creatures, the animals that God creates. Um, uh, even though we don't have that right. Um, I actually, this is something I forgot to mention earlier uh, when I was talking about the restriction strategy of like exactly how it works for unconditionally gratuitous evil. So maybe I should say something about that. Um, so remember that the unconditionally gratuitous evils are the ones where it's they're impermissible regardless of whether or not they're needed for an outweighing good. Okay, so, um, so uh, oh shucks. I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, right. So, so some philosophers have pointed out that, you know, moral obligations or rather some moral obligations seem to be role relative. So like, depending on what roles you occupy, you can have different obligations from other people. So like parents, for example, have obligations that are unique to being a parent, obligations toward their children that non-parents don't have. A judge or a president or a police officer, right? People who occupy different roles have these different obligations that other people who don't occupy those roles don't have. And they're also like, you know, like, you know, one parent has obligations towards their kid, a different parent has different obligations because they have obligations towards different kids and they believe their own kids, right? So not everybody has the same obligations. And so the way to, I think the way to deal with the, the problem about unconditionally gratuitous evil is to say that, yeah, some evils are unconditionally gratuitous relative to us but it doesn't follow that they're unconditionally gratuitous relative to God. Um, it's plausible that God occupies some roles that no human beings or, uh, would ever occupy. And it could be that those roles come with special prerogatives and special obligations or duties um, in virtue of which maybe God is required to uh, you know, let animals suffer for the sake of soul making, even if we're not, or to let people suffer for the sake of soul making, even if it would be wrong for us to do similar things. Anyway, um, how was that? Was that clear? Yeah, no, I think I'm tracking with you. Um, so one kind of, like, while I'm thinking about this, Justin, um, so would you say something like, well, maybe like, um, in the case of like, let's just leave it out with the fawns, like the fawn suffers, um, and maybe it's gratuitous in the sense that like, there's no greater good for maybe even like the fawn in that sense. Um, but because of like some of maybe like God's other like prerogatives, um, he may allow for things such as like a noble natural order. Um, so unfortunately that's just a result of that. And so he's going to restrict himself from intervening in that sense. Um, because he has this, like this other thing that he values. Is that, is that, am I, am I tracking with you at least a little bit maybe? Yeah, um, that sounded close. Uh, so, so the idea was that, um, so suppose the fawn suffering is conditionally gratuitous, right? It doesn't serve mm -hmm. any, there's no greater good that it brings about. Nevertheless, yeah. there may be some good that it brings about. It's just, you know, maybe it's a good that doesn't outweigh it. So it's not a greater good, right? Mm -hmm. So you might think that, yeah, soul making is pretty good, but you might think, I'm not sure if it's good enough to make that like those days of agony worthwhile, right? Now, if you're inclined to think that, this strategy that I'm suggesting gives you a way to say, okay, sure, that's maybe that's true. Maybe the soul making isn't good enough to outweigh the fawn suffering. But that doesn't mean God wouldn't permit the suffering for the sake of the soul making, because it could be that there's a deontological duty that God has mm -hmm. to permit that suffering for that soul making. That's the idea. 
Yeah, okay. I think I'm tracking with you. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go to, just, there's a couple questions. Um, so we'll go to those in just a moment, Justin. But do you have any kind of like um, last thoughts with regards to like the problem of evil or anything you want to mention regarding this before we um, go to those questions? Sure, yeah. I mean, if you don't mind, uh, we had initially talked about maybe saying something about the moral natural evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do have something kind of controversial that I just think it would be fun to mention. Um, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind. Um, yeah, go for so, it. Yeah. Uh, this is maybe not super uh, connected to what we've said so far, but it seems to me, so there's this big deal that a lot of people make about this distinction between moral evil and natural evil. Roughly moral evil is evil that's um, the result of like free, the free actions of the agents that God creates like human beings. So it'll include things like murder and genocide and, and other kinds of horrible things like that where people freely do evil things. Um, and the natural evil is roughly evil that's not produced by free actions of people. So like diseases, natural disasters, uh, animals suffering in their natural environment, stuff like that. Okay, now um, it seems to me uh, that I actually think this distinction is not very important. And the reason I think it's not very important is because I think it's only as important as free will. And I have become more and more uh, drawn to the view that free will just doesn't have a very important role to play in explaining why God permits evil. Um, and if it doesn't, then it's just like, well, why do we care about this distinction that basically is just built around the free will approach? So um, let me say something more about that. Um, so the reason why people pay attention to the distinction between moral evil and natural evil, as far as I can tell, the reason is pretty much just that, well, because free will approaches to thinking about God's reason for permitting evil are, um, a lot of people think, pretty good at explaining uh, why moral evil exists or why God permits it, but not so good, a lot of people think, at explaining why God permits natural evil. And so there's this special problem about, well, how do we deal with natural evil? Um, and so that makes it sort of like an important category, right? Natural evil as opposed to moral evil. But if you don't think that free will has an important role to play in God's reasons for permitting evil, um, then... Uh, it seems like there isn't really any import, important attention that we need to give to this special category of natural evils because most, if not all, of the other theories about why God permits evil um, don't, or they're not limited to like moral evils, the way the free will approaches. They're just indiscriminately stories about why God permits evil. Um, and so uh, it's like once you've set aside free will and said, I'm not really going to rely on that, the distinction between moral and natural evil, it seems to me, just becomes completely unimportant, uh, or at least maybe not completely, but uh, highly unimportant, I guess. Anyway, that was just a controversial thought that I've been, I was uh, wanting to share. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have your controversy. Um, so then like, in your mind, like if you're gonna say, well, free will isn't really something that God may value. Like, is it like soul making or like like what what's like your like what is God value like like what's oh. the purpose of evil then like in your mind then if we're gonna so, axe out you know <laughs> yeah yeah so I think soul making is a better bet than free will um, and I I, I I think a lot of people actually have that view at any rate I've, I've met other people who express the same thought that soul making is better mm -hmm. than free will but actually um, it's. What, the way I'm leaning now is what I talked about earlier, the meaningful. Yeah. Um, mm. So it's a matter of 
like, uh, and again, I don't have any of the details worked out yet. Um, <laughs> the idea that really what God is aiming for and what requires evil like that in our world is meaningfulness or perhaps a certain degree mm. or kind of meaningfulness. Hmm. Yeah, it's super helpful to think about. And I, I appreciate you bringing, like, bringing the meaningfulness idea because it's something I haven't thought too much about. Um, so definitely something to think about. Um, we have a couple of questions on your way out, um, Justin. Um, so BDS says, um, if there is objective morality, does this imply a hierarchy of morality such that like on the top of that hierarchy, there must be a top, therefore God exists. So I think he's like asking, like, what do you think about like more realism? Like, does that imply God? And then like, there's like that line of response to the problem of evil where it's like, well, that implies like maybe like more realism. So God must exist if there's evil. It's like something along those lines. Right. Yeah. So I guess I'm not uh, convinced that the existence of objective morality implies the existence of God. Uh, um, some people think it does, of course. Um, that's uh, a well-known fact. I'm not convinced of that. Um, and in particular, the way this the, the way this this question seems to be talking about, well, doesn't it do it in the following way? Like, well, if there are objective moral facts, then there's going to be like some kind of a an objective ranking of value where there's more valuable things and less valuable things. And somewhere there's going to be a most valuable thing at the top. Um, and that might be true. It's actually um, you could resist that. You could say that, you know, for any valuable thing you pick, there are always like, it, there's like an infinite series of more and more valuable things, um, especially if the universe is infinitely large. Like if one star is valuable, then maybe two stars is more valuable and three stars is more valuable and so on ad infinitum. And so there's just no most valuable thing. You also might think that there's like an incommensurability problem. Like maybe there are some things that are valuable and that can't be compared in respect of value, they're just too different. And uh, and so that like, yeah, this thing is really valuable and it's more valuable than some things. And this other thing is also really value valuable and it's more valuable than some things. But when you try to compare them to each other, there's just no answer to the question, which is more or less or equally valuable. Um, but also even if there was at like the top of this value hierarchy, a one most valuable thing, uh, it's not clear to me that it would have to be God. Um, I mean, in fact, I think it is God. But if, you know, if I was an atheist, I would just say, well, I just, uh, you know, maybe as a matter of fact, the most valuable thing that exists is virtue or the universe as a whole. And even if there could have been something more valuable than that, there in fact is not, uh, you know, it doesn't exist. Um, or like Plato, for example, thought that there was this form of the good, which was like the arch form, the ultimate form. And, uh, um, you know, you might think, well, that's like at the peak of the value hierarchy, but that isn't God. It's a form. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Okay. So those are some thoughts. Yeah. That's super interesting to think about. Um, Benjamin Bethel has a common question, I think, with regards to the problem of evil. And he says, so why should we stop evil? If it's the ultimate good is to live like God and adopt his ways, um, we shouldn't stop evil and just allow it to happen for the greater good. God doesn't feel it's necessary. Um, so curious what your thoughts are on this kind of uh, pushback. Yeah. So actually, I think that the, the deontological strategies that I've been talking about have a really important advantage when it comes to this problem. And that's because um, they don't say that, you know, well, uh, let me break this down. Um, so, so, you know, one, uh, if we think about, um, conditionally gratuitous evil, some of these deontological strategies or some way of spelling, some ways of spelling them out say that, look, some of the evils in the world, um, 
are in fact not serving a greater good. And uh, you might think, well, that's actually a pretty good reason to try to prevent them. Now, it doesn't follow that um, God has a good reason to prevent them just because we do. Um, because, uh, you know, God might have, like I said, duties that are unique to God's role. Um, the same thing with unconditionally gratuitous evils, right? There might be some evils that we're just obligated to prevent, even if they do serve some outweighing good, but that God isn't because God has prerogatives or other duties uh, that are unique to God's role. So, um, I mean, I guess, let's see, is there a clearer or more succinct way of putting this? I guess the idea is that when you take a, in general, the idea is when you take a deontological approach, um, the question of should I eliminate evil is not just a simple matter of, you know, would it would things be better overall if I did? And the question of should God eliminate evil is also not just a simple matter of would things be better better overall if God did? And the question of what we should do with respect to evil doesn't automatically tell you what God should do with respect to evil because of like role relative obligations and things like that. And I think that those are just useful tools for dealing with this kind of um, problem and explaining like why it's still, it sh we should still pursue like preventing evil and alleviating it and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful, Justin. I appreciate you coming on today, talking about like these things and thinking about them. Um, do you have any kind of like last thoughts or things you didn't get to say before we wrap things up here? Um, yeah, I guess. No, I guess I don't really have um, anything further. Uh, I think we kind of covered it, but I, I enjoyed this. So thanks for having me on. It was fun to think through that paper again. It's been a couple of years. So um, yeah, it's super fun to think about these things, especially with regards to like the problem. Like there's so much there. Like it's just so much fun to think about um, all the interesting ideas that are out there in the world of philosophy and such. Um, so thanks for coming on, on Justin. If people want to like find you or follow your work, where can they do that? Oh, right. Yeah. So I have a website, justinmooney.net. And I all of my published papers, I post there as PDFs so you can access them pretty easily. And then there are some links on there to like my social media pages if, if anyone happens to be interested in that. Does your social media page like consist of just like pictures of like hippos? Is that? <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. Like my Twitter <laughs> page has at times been very dominated by hippo posts. Um, and also, I actually Facebook too, I guess. It, it sometimes, not always, but there are times when it's just like everything on there is hippo related. <laughs> <laughs> that's so much fun. Well, I mean, you know, that makes you special and not just that way, but that's so much fun to think about, Justin. So, and just hippos, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. I encourage everyone um, to check out Justin's work. There's a link to the paper down below if you want to see what's going on there. Um, and if you're new to the channel, always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like. Um, all this stuff really helps. Um, and yeah, that's it. And if you enjoy our content, you can become a patron at patreon.com. So, should hear a project. So, Justin, one last time, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Yep. Thanks. And to Kel VC, Fredo, Ben, everyone else, thank you for tuning in. Have a good one and God bless.